0: hello everyone and welcome to teach me something the podcast where i research the latest topic that catches my fancy and then i tell you all the good bits i'm melissa
1: and i'm everett
0: So as you've probably seen from our title, the topic this week is the Poison Squad. But seeing as we're not actually going to get to the part of the story with the Poison Squad quite yet, Hmm. not not this week, (laughs) I thought I should start by maybe giving you a small preview of what the series is going to be about.
1: It's like the origin story, because... Poison Squad sounds like a superhero squad it totally or super does. villain squad.
0: The number of times I accidentally typed Suicide Squad, yeah. on my
1: <laughs> oh Harley Quinn.
0: <laughs> I don't, I don't know if they were nearly as helpful um, or as so I say as altruistic as these people were, but sure. Um, so, so in general, here is here is what we're going to start discussing. There is this tendency to idealize the types of food that people used to eat or people mm-hmm. ate in the past. Um, You know, the idea that back in the day, people ate simple, natural, healthy food, organic, pure, wholesome, no chemicals, no GMOs, no preservatives, those... I'm sure you know all the buzzwords. Yes. And in this series, I'm here to tell you that that is an absolute crock of something really smelly. Okay. Food, and especially water... Uh, was quite likely to be biologically contaminated in the past.
1: Of course. I
0: mean, humans had very few ways to keep our food from becoming rotting germ-infested parasite delivery systems. Um, And, you know, obviously it's been a problem for millennia. Uh, Alexander the Great died of typhoid fever. Yeah. Typhoid Mary typhoid. And as you may or may not know... Typhoid is caused by a type of salmonella bacteria that's spread through food or drink.
1: Right.
0: If you were interested, it's spread through the fecal-oral route. So someone has to get poop particles and food and drink, and then you eat them, and then you get typhoid.
1: Which is always fun.
0: Which is how Mary spread so much typhoid. Right. She was a cook, and also asymptomatic. And uh, I'm getting off track. So food and waterborne illnesses um, were obviously a major problem. During the unfortunate Middle Ages, as well, when uh, hygiene just took a major nosedive and everything we learned about science was just, like, completely forgotten in favor of blaming everything on God's will and other supernatural stuff.
1: Yeah, a lot went So that wrong. was a
0: bad, that was a bad point. We were starting to get everything figured out, and then the Middle Ages came along, and ugh. But then, then it's the Industrial Revolution. Right. Which, in turn, gives rise to industrial chemistry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... There's a huge explosion of research and manufacturing, and and that includes new synthetic food additives and substitutes. Yes. Now, humans have a new way to make our food entirely unfit for human consumption. And businesses were going to use them.
1: As business does.
0: And use them. And use them some more until someone made them stop. Yeah. Um, And... Don't forget the added wrinkle of the Industrial Revolution, which is that people now lived all packed together in cities, big populations, big centers of populations that needed to be fed. So, factories, warehouses, slaughterhouses all popped up in cities. Yep. Uh, food was processed in ways it never was before, and again, done as cheaply as possible to save money. Um, I promise not to give the capitalism bad speech too often during this podcast, but. Dear Lord, the things that will make other people eat to save a buck, you know. Uh, you know, and and things were dirty and germy. Uh, let's face it, the germ theory of disease wasn't really even a thing till the mid-1800s and it wasn't well accepted until the late 1800s. So the idea of us making all this food dirty and this other dirty food making people sick. People sick and then yeah, that wasn't that wasn't really how we knew that it worked. We didn't really get it yet. Mm -hmm. um so it's just gross it was really gross and the thing is it wasn't really a secret people yeah people knew it was well known that their foods were fake or untrustworthy or you know at worst lethal and 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 before with all the you know bacteria and contamination that was an accident you know food poisoning used to be an accident and all of a sudden now it's kind of on purpose Again, just to, to save some money.
1: Right.
0: Um, and, and the European governments, um, as you won't be surprised to hear, were the quickest to, to react to this, recognize it and regulate food safety. Um, as well as us here in Canada, we did a pretty good job. Uh, but things had to get pretty disgusting before that happened. And uh, and the United States, in comparison, was pretty slow on the uptake. Really slow to enact any sort of national laws. And which is a statement I think we could apply to maybe a few other topics as well. But I don't want to derail myself again. Sure. Um, so the story of the Poison Squad is a story about this chemist, Harvey Wiley, and the really, like, outrageously tough fight he had to put up to get America to pass their first national food safety regulations. Um, and he'll do that with the help of the Poison Squad. Superheroes. They, they maybe aren't the biggest part of this story, but they have the coolest name, so yeah. obviously... This makes sense. Yeah.
1: I mean, they're not wearing half-shells or masks, <laughs> but they're still pretty <laughs> They cool. are
0: not heroes on the half-shell, sorry to say.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I thought for this series, I should start out these shows with a little bit of a disclaimer. I mean, some people aren't going to be bothered at all by listening to the stuff I'm going to say. I, I mean, I mostly wrote this on my breaks at work when I was eating my lunch, so I know that a lot of people aren't going to be bothered, but I do think it's quite possible that some people who maybe get a little easier gross out, you, you probably just don't want to eat during this. Um, I do think the side effects of this might be a little nauseating.
1: Sure. We do want people to be able to eat again in the future, so...
0: Yeah, yeah. A- after the episodes maybe, just not during.
1: Oh, okay. Fair enough. Okay. How about you teach me something?
0: So I thought uh, we'd start with a few examples of all the weird and dangerous stuff that used to be added to food. Sure. I'm going to open with a quote from an 1820 book that was written by a London chemist, because I like it. It does a good job of summing things up. Our pickles are made green by copper, our vinegar rendered sharp with sulfuric acid, our cream, composed of rice powder and bad milk. Our comfies mixed of sugar, starch, and clay, and colored with preparations of copper and lead. Our catsup, often formed of the dregs of distilled vinegar with a decoction of the outer green husk of walnuts and seasoned with allspice. Sounds yummy. I was going to say, I don't, I'm not sure that sounds anything like ketchup. But at least that last one, you know, at least it wasn't going to poison you.
1: Whoa. Probably depends on the exact mixture of those things and no. concentration.
0: I mean, walnuts and allspice and vinegar doesn't sound too poisonous. I mean,
1: vinegar can be... Unless
0: it has sulfuric acid in it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Vinegar can be pretty strong and quite distilled and be problematic as well. Yeah,
0: I guess dregs kind of means the concentrated leftovers.
1: So. That's kind of what I was thinking, like the bottom of the <laughs> vinegar distillery bottles, maybe a little gritty or something.
0: Uh, a little. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just like a little nice summary. I mean, it wasn't the only foods that had issues, though. Honey, as we're going to talk about later, was usually just dyed corn syrup and like something to thicken it. And then they put a little piece of honeycomb right on top in the middle. Just, Very just so you knew how, fa- oh, yeah, how authentic it was, right? Um, brown sugar was often mixed with ground insects. And protein. I will, uh, next week, we'll talk about how um, the, the condition that actually caused in in some people called grocer's itch. Ew. I just, I'm kind of, that one creeped me out a little bit. I don't want okay. bugs in my ground. <laughs> uh, vanilla extract was just like the cheapest clear liquor, like ethanol that they could find. And then they would just put brown dye in it. Strawberry jam um, was sometimes mashed apple peelings, grass seeds, and red dye.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Coffee could be like sawdust, wheat, beans, beets, peas, dandelion seeds, and then they just like scorch it and grind it all up in its coffee.
1: Most of those things sounded edible, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, good job actually on that one. Mm-hmm. It wasn't <laughs> going to kill people. I
1: mean, sawdust not so great, but you know, peas or beans. Yeah, maybe maybe it
0: wasn't like a lot of sawdust. Who knows? Yeah. Um. So flour, they would cut flour with like crushed stone or gypsum mm-hmm,
1: to you know mm-hmm. stretch
0: it out um dyes usually like they use them for candy and like sweet things like icing but of these kind of dyes were in other foods too um so so dyes were pretty toxic dyes were one of the worst things so green i don't know how you would make green food but they used arsenic and copper
1: I was going to go with copper that one makes sense like oxidized oxidized copper is usually mm. green you yeah. can scrape it off things
0: and eat it apparently
1: well i didn't go there in my mind but sure
0: <laughs> okay so if you want something yellow and then you just put some lead chromate in there okay uh if you want to make something pink you just use red lead hmm. uh huh but milk as we're going to talk about some more later was was kind of the worst offender overall uh, dairymen would dilute the milk to make more money, again. Uh, so their recipe was usually like a cup of warm water for two cups of milk. It's okay.
1: It's like a pretty,
0: pretty a one-third dilute. one-third dilution, basically. Um, ew, here, nice chemistry knowledge oh, is yeah, going to come that's, into effect.
1: <laughs> that's, that's where the chemistry comes in, in terms of the mathematics <laughs> of the situation.
0: Yeah. Um, they would also skim the cream off so they could use it for something else yeah. um, or just sell cream. But... It was supposed to have the cream. So as you can imagine, now there's problems with the milk because it's thin uh, without the cream. And it tended to look a little bluish okay. after they diluted it. So for the color, to fix the color up, they would just either add some chalk or plaster of Paris or both. Um, and then mo- and some molasses. So it's a little white, a little golden.
1: Well, that would help um, thicken it up too. Uh
0: a little bit, but but that, that wasn't going to thicken it to the amount they needed. Oh. So what they usually did was they would add a thick yellow paste, um, and, and that's made of pureed calf brains, mm. and then mm-hmm. stir that all together.
1: At least it's still cow.
0: And at least apparently there wasn't a huge epidemic of mad cow disease from this either. So yeah, that's kind of lucky. That's good. Um, so what
1: kind of time frame are we talking about for those types of examples? Like early 1800s?
0: So this would be things that occurred in the late seventeen hundreds. Like we're talking again after the industrial revolution. So yeah. the late seventeen hundreds, um, and and there's no end there is no end date on okay, this. Of we're course. gonna talk about the end date but on But The this. predominance of it. Um so I would say early to mid eighteen hundreds in the civilized world and then until, you know, you'll see with America, but it's gonna sure. be a while. And it gets worse. This is not... It's get, it gets worse. So so what was the situation like in Europe? Let's start there. Because um, in Britain, they really hit their breaking point in 1857. There's years of illnesses and deaths ca- caused by um, adulterated foods. And just to clarify, r- adulterated food. is. This is going to come up a lot, it's this not, word.
1: It's not scandalous in the it's way not, that you might think. It's <laughs>
0: not having an affair. Um... Just to clarify, it just it just means adding something to the food that lowers the quality in some way. Sure. So, you know, dilute it, poison it, you know, those things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so the, de- the deaths that they've been having in Britain were, were mostly children because they were very heavily linked to these toxic dyes. And the toxic dyes were usually in candy. And who's eating candy the most is kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And we also have to remember, though, that the only deaths that they blamed on foods were acute, like were sudden deaths. If you had been eating lead dye in your candy for a year and then you die, they're not going to blame that on the candy. So any estimates we have are going to be just vastly under um, under what was actually caused, yeah. caused by these things. So what happened in 1857? 21 people died in Yorkshire. After eating candy accidentally tainted with arsenic trioxide. As our chemist, our resident chemist will tell you, you shouldn't eat arsenic. But you definitely shouldn't eat it as arsenic trioxide.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are forms or compounds of arsenic that are bonded in a certain way that they won't cause you issues and could be ingested.
0: Uh, are you sure you're willing to put, like, no, legally no. to put your, like, no, no, no. word on the line? Do not tell people to eat
1: arsenic. No, don't eat arsenic. I'm just saying it can be bonded to things that make them less lethal. However, but we're not telling most you to forms eat arsenic. of arsenic are exceptionally, exceptionally bad.
0: Yeah. So you may be wondering, as I was, how one can accidentally poison someone with arsenic trioxide
1: well it's like they're walking to the factory factory and they accidentally trip <laughs> and then poof the bag of arsenic they were covering just went everywhere mm. and you know it was just an accident
0: well what actually happened here mm. was that the confectioner was trying to mix plaster of paris into his candy because that's totally an ingredient that should be in candy
1: yeah.
0: but uh-oh. At
1: least it comes from Someone France.
0: sold him arsenic trioxide instead. And even though, which came out later, by the way, even though he noticed while the workers were making the candy that they kept getting sick yeah, in a way they hadn't before, he just was like, whatever, I'm still going to sell it. And so he did. And 21 people died. I want to say minimum, knowing how those numbers work. Um, And people were really mad. They, oh. The police arrested the confectioner and the pharmacist who sold him the arsenic. But Britain had no laws against making unsafe or lethal food products. So despite all the public outrage, they had to let them go. And like, when I read this part, I was thinking, could they not just use a law where you can't kill people? Like
1: some sort because of gross neg- he'll, negligence he'll type of thing.
0: But I'm not a lawyer, so what do I know? Mm-hmm. Well. And I'm especially not a lawyer in 1800s Britain. I bet that was a little different. Maybe. So, by 1860, all that public fervor in Britain had led to the Act for Preventing Adulteration in Food and Drink. Good. Sounded good. Um, but lobbying from businesses really kind of reduced the possible punishment um, of the law, under, under the law, which was set at five pounds. Oh. Now, I looked this up. That is six hundred and twenty-three pounds today, or about a thousand dollars Canadian. Oh, okay, great. Thousand dollars Canadian, and you get to go home from killing people with your poison candy. They did, they did better after this, but at least, at least it was a start, right? Um, and then you know, like Dominoes, all, all other European countries started passing laws, um, food and drink and drug safety type laws. Um, In case you were wondering, Canada's first food safety regulators passed legislation in 1875 to prohibit the adulteration of food, drinks, and drugs.
1: Mm.
0: So, pretty good. 1875. Good for us. But now, this really started to become an international issue. Other countries started banning the import of food and drink from the United States because they still had no regulations. Um, governments even started to make laws saying like a manufacturer can't include this ingredient if you want to sell it to your country, but if you're going to sell it to the States, you can just do whatever you want. So just as an example, like the German government banned using salicylic acid as a preservative in wine and beer. Um, they banned that in 1881, but this law like explicitly carved out an exception that if it was for export to the USA, they could put all the salicylic acid in it. They wanted it was just like this whole, if if you don't care, why should we, attitude. Sure. Um, I
1: mean, there is kind of a logic behind that. It's as almost sinister as it sounds.
0: Yeah. Why should they spend extra money on, you know, making it safe if someone doesn't care? I, I kind of feel bad, though, because we know the difference between a country's people and a country's government. Uh, yeah. Um, and I want to talk about the USA from here on out, pretty much. Okay. It's pretty much going to be focused on the USA because that's where the real story is. That's where the drama happens. But before we do that, I like let's meet the hero of the story. Let's meet Harvey Wiley. He's pretty cool, actually. I found him very interesting. Um, he, Harvey Washington Wiley, oh,
1: very was born
0: on a small farm in Kent, Indiana, um, in 1844. He was. The sixth of seven kids, and uh, his family farm was less than 100 miles from Abraham Lincoln's childhood farm. His father grew mainly sorghum cane. Um, sorghum is like a type of sweet grass.
1: Okay.
0: It's kind of comparable to how corn or maize like, was in more ancestral forms before we started breeding it to be those big fat ears of corn, and it was more of a, a grain and a grass. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that and you use it in a similar way. Uh, like as a six year old, Harvey was already helping his dad process the cane into syrup. So you make a sweet syrup out of it, just like you would, you know, corn syrup or sugar syrup from sugar cane. Um, and, and that's really cool because he eventually became a leading expert in sugar chemistry. So it started early for him. And, uh, his father really raised him to value two things education and standing up for his beliefs. His family was really active in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, Every night Wiley's father would gather around all the kids and read to them from Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I don't know if you've heard of it. I'd heard of it, but I've never really looked into it. But it's a really powerful abolitionist Mm -hmm. story. Um, And another really cool thing is that the Wiley family farm was Indiana's southernmost stop on the underground railroad. So slaves that were fleeing Kentucky would stop there first and Wiley's dad would help them, yeah. you know, cover of darkness, get to the next safe point. It's it's it was really it really gave Wiley like um Harvey Wiley a really good grounding in like doing the moral thing even if it wasn't popular. Sure. And you know, speaking his mind kind of thing?
1: Sounds like foreshadowing.
0: Um yeah. Yeah, he'll become outspoken eventually. <laughs> so he enrolled at Hanover College in 1863, right before Civil War breaks out. Um, he, you know, with those strong morals, he wants to fight and his parents want him to finish his education. So he gets through about a year and then just can't do it anymore. He quits school and joins the Union Army. Um Unfortunately, though, he got really sick um, after only a few months because measles, like, just raged through his... Sure. um, ...his infantry unit. He got... He was discharged to go recuperate at home. So he was really only in the war for a few months. But the whole thing kind of really made him interested in studying medicine. Okay. So the next stop for him, he got a BA and an MA from Hanover in uh, 1867 and then got his MD in 1871. Um... But he really quickly decided he didn't like caring for sick people. Mm. <laughs> the science he was cool with, the people, I don't know. Like, this just was not his cup of tea. So um, he, did, he got a job teaching high school chemistry. Okay. I, yeah, I'm not. It kind of seems a little random, but teaching, I guess, goes with his his values. Yeah, why not? And he loved it. Like, he really loved it. He appreciated the, quote, nobility and magnitude of the field
1: of chemistry. Okay.
0: And so now, Everett, as a chemist, I'm going to give you a second to speak to that. Did you feel nobility and magnitude when you studied chemistry? I'm kind of wondering what what that means.
1: (laughs) I mean, when you study the noble glasses, that's noble. (laughs) And in terms of, you know, magnitude, I would say it's on the level of, like, Atoms. That's the magnitude of it.
0: So, like, small because they're really small, or, like, immense because they're so important?
1: Uh, yes.
0: Mm, 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 Right? That's a thinker. Um, And so, he decided to go to Harvard. He got his Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry after a few months, because apparently that's not unusual for the time. Okay. Yeah.
1: Took me a little longer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but You didn't go to Harvard, okay? So. Oh,
1: Harvard would have easier. I get it. Okay, good.
0: I don't know. Something about Harvard. And then in 1874, he became Purdue's first and only professor of chemistry. Hmm. So, you know, he was really foundational. Like, he really got in at the ground floor. Um,. So the interesting parts that actually pertain to this poison squad is the next thing he does is he takes a working sabbatical to the newly united German Empire in 1878. They were the global leader in chemical research. And somewhat ironically, he actually studied under a guy um, named August Wilhelm von Hoffmann, who was just renowned, famous, famous chemist. And I say ironic because he was the discoverer of formaldehyde and the developer of several industrial dyes. Hmm. And these were things, specifically things, that Wiley ended up fighting against later being put into food. Just because you invent something doesn't mean it's your fault when they put it in food. Of course. All right. So now we have a little bit of lay of the land. We've met the main character. I think it's time to dive into the situation in the U.S. All right. All right. So the first real attempt to pass national food safety regulations came in eighteen seventy
1: nine. It's still like twenty seven or twenty two years after Britain, right?
0: Well Britain no Britain 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 was eighteen sixty. But like I said, that wasn't a great okay. law. And it took the you know
1: Sure. It, okay.
0: It right now it's four years after Canada passed our first laws.
1: Great. Okay. Um
0: this would have been a fine time. I don't think anyone would have made fun of them if they, if they, if they got it done in 1879. Um, so, a Virginia congressman introduced a bill that would have banned interstate commerce in any chemically altered food. B- but, like, man, that bill died so fast. It became really apparent the U.S. government was not interested in dealing with this issue yet. Nor would they be for almost three more decades. Great. So, in 1881... Harvey Wiley had his uh, first foray into government work. The Indiana State Board of Health asked him to examine the purity of some commercially sold sweet things, like honey, maple syrup, that kind of stuff. And he used a special instrument called a polarimeter to evaluate his samples, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, he had to buy himself with his own money while he was in Germany because uh, Purdue told Wiley it was too newfangled and fancy to ever be necessary and... You know, they weren't going to spend money on that. Of course. (laughs) Technology. Newfangled technology. Anyways, his results showed that almost 90% of commercially sold honey and maple syrup was just corn syrup and dye. 90%. So he also found there's lots of contamination from the manufacturing process, too. There was copper, which is probably from the mixing tubs, and charred animal bones from charcoal filtration. Okay. And also sulfuric acid. I didn't really get a explanation on how that got in there.
1: Because someone tripped and fell and spilled the acid in there. Yeah.
0: there is a lot of tripping going on back in the day. That's the best
1: explanation of how these things got into the food. (laughs) So
0: so Wiley publishes this report with this information, um, including one of my favorite lines. I'm going to quote here. Most honeys I've tested are entirely free of bee mediation. I thought that was pretty smooth, yeah. Um, Wiley thought the beekeepers would be really thrilled at this news. Like, it exposed all this fake competition, and so maybe their honey could sell for the proper price now if people knew maybe it was real honey. But they were really mad. They were, like, openly hostile as a group. They called his report Wiley's lie, and they made a huge deal out of the papers. Um, And I guess some of the honey producers were worried that it would just damage their reputation and no one would think any honey was real. And that's why they were mad. But, um, as Wiley said, it has become obvious that there are beekeepers who have not as of late been bothering to keep bees. So I'm thinking some of them saw a shortcut. Profit Again, margins. easy way to save money. And, uh, yeah, so they were not happy with our Harvey Wiley. Um, but what we've got to keep in mind is that corn is and was king in parts oh, yes. of the USA. So this corn syrup stuff is not super surprising. They they were really keen to use corn for everything and anything. Of course. Um, like corn was everywhere and making it, it corn syrup was cheap. It was super cheap. Um, So to show you how much they're making, by 1881, which is when this is happening, there were almost two dozen corn syrup factories in the Midwest, and this is not even, you know, not even 12 years after the industry started. Wow. Um, They processed 25,000 bushels of corn. I don't know how big a bushel is, so bushels of corn a day into Mm -hmm. corn syrup. Yay big? Everett's making a hand gesture. Um, a hand gesture of like two feet. Uh, he's changing the size of his hands. I don't. I don't know.
1: I'm, I'm going with eight cubic feet. Ooh.
0: We're gonna look this up after next week. We'll fill you in. We'll fill you
1: back in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and and we definitely can't forget where it is that Wiley lives and works. So Purdue is in Indiana. Indiana is big in corn. And Wiley was raised to stand up for his beliefs, so he continued to write reports um, about how important it was to truthfully label things and have honest food and not put corn syrup in everything without telling people. And as you can imagine, people did not like that.
1: Okay, the official... A bushel of corn... No, no, no. Corn was assigned a bushel weight of 56 pounds. So obviously 8 cubic feet was... Fifty-six
0: pounds times twenty-five thousand—that's what we're going with okay. per day. Per day. Um, per day
1: was Why being turned
0: fifty-six. Yeah, twenty-five thousand bushels of corn a day was being turned into corn syrup. Okay, so they—they they really wanted to put this stuff in things. Of course. Um. Anyway, so as I was saying, people in Indiana were not happy with Wiley Purdue. The Purdue Board of Trustees were not happy with Wiley. They summoned him to this meeting where they kind of aired all their grievances at him. Um, Here are his grievances, by the way. He played baseball with the students. For shame. He rode a bicycle to campus.
1: Oh, boy.
0: He wore shorts while riding his bicycle.
1: (laughs) I was going to ask if that was during the bicycle riding.
0: It was. It sounds How like one outrageous event. He was outrageous. Um, he published that corn report. They really didn't like that. They didn't like that corn syrup thing. About oh, that honey. was just
1: minor in comparison <laughs> to the bicycle, right?
0: <laughs> and the baseball. Um, but here's another thing they really didn't like. According to one trustee, and again, I'm going to quote, because I can't do justice to this, scientific progress is the devil's tool. Yes. So they just didn't like. They didn't like anything. They even compared him to a circus monkey, which Wiley said he would have taken as an insult if he hadn't found it so amusing.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: So this seemed then to be the perfect time for Wiley to make a big career change. (laughs) Things weren't going so well. Uh, The commissioner of the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, as you might have heard of it, um, he asked Wiley to be the new chief chemist. And by the way, it's a conditioner because the USDA was at this point not a cabinet or not a, oh goodness, I forget, U.S. politics. So it okay. would be a secretary normally, yeah. but it was just a commissioner because the USDA wasn't yet a cabinet position, a cabinet organization. What do you call it? I don't know. Okay. U.S. politics are not my forte, you guys. We'll get to it later. Um. So he asked Wiley to be their new chemist, and he was really impressed with Wiley's ability to evaluate all sides of an issue and come to rational and biased conclusions. And he was also really tired of his current chief chemist calling him an imbecile in the press all the time. Mm. So
1: that tends to wear on people.
0: Yeah. Um, and, And Wiley's first major project with the USDA was to undertake a series of investigations into food adulteration. Okay. So here's kind of the beginning of this. And his boss recommended starting with the dairy industry. And the dairy industry was a good place to start because it was just absolutely disgusting.
1: Adulterated.
0: And disgusting. Just okay. just disgusting. While his <laughs> boss asked him to look into, into dairy because, mainly because of this new product that was flooding the markets, which was margarine, okay. butter substitutes in general. Um, but the issues in the dairy industry did run much, much deeper than that. So everyone, uh, again, capitalism, um, everyone's looking for a way to use all of their waste of course, to make money. They want to sell their waste to make money.
1: Yeah. Because if not, then waste becomes an expense line. If you can turn into a revenue line, that's a double win. And that's
0: all that matters. Mm -hmm. So here... Okay, so distillers, whiskey distillers. Here's what we're going to start with. Um, again, they use corn, right? They do. So whiskey distillers kept dairy cows. Why do they keep dairy cows, you may wonder? Because they want to do something with the swill, they call it. Yeah. That is the byproduct that is, well, not byproduct, that is just leftover. It's just the waste. Um, yeah. After making whiskey. Swill is mainly just sugar and alcohol corn sugar it was it was corn Mm -hmm. sugar and alcohol so cows apparently should just eat this and only this apparently and if you think that sounds like a terrible idea it, it it is um they also generally kept the cows crammed together in a dark dingy urban warehouse so they tied them up they couldn't move they fed them on this swill uh didn't feed them anything else Uh, And and there was, like, clouds of flies in the warehouse so thick you couldn't see. There was maggots crawling everywhere. The cows were knee-deep in their own feces. Um, They led horribly, disgusting, miserable lives. And I'm sad just thinking about it. Their teeth all rotted and fell out. They died, you know, after only a few years. Um, But importantly, they made milk. So it's profitable for the whiskey makers because they didn't spend any money on the cows.
1: Yeah. And
0: pediatricians, though, were like really quick to be like, swill milk is killing children, or you know, the children drinking it are malnourished. Like, clearly something wasn't right with the actual um, nutrition in the milk. Uh, there wasn't really a way to like analyze that back then. They couldn't really break down the vitamin mineral content. Well. They could do it a little bit, but not. That's that's not kind of where we
1: were at so back standard then. Standard that we would. So it today. was like
0: just relying on the doctors being like, "This, I think, this is what's causing the problem." Not that it mattered though, because someone would have had to make a law about it and my freedom. Anyways, so in kids that drank swill milk, the the doctors saw like what they called a sickly appearance, loose flesh, weak joints, loss of appetite. Their breath smelled like rot. They had nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, all that wonderful stuff. Um, they actually did a study of swill milk in, made in New Jersey. And they're trying to see like how many big worms, parasites, whatever. How much biological stuff there was in there. Um, I'm going to quote again because, I, again, can't do it justice. So, quote, So numerous a proportion of liquefying colonies of bacteria... Further counting was discontinued.
1: Ran out of numbers.
0: It yeah, it was one of those things where it's like, why are we even still counting? Like, it was not fit for consumption way back, way back there. <laughs> uh, Indiana, an Indiana analysis reported finding sticks, hairs, insects, blood, pus, maggots, and feces in the milk samples. And so, the dairy industry became the subject of. Technical Bulletin Number 13, Part 1 of
1: 3. Wow, that sounds fancy.
0: Which just goes to show you that chemists might be good at science, but their naming skills could use a little work. Just uh, further in this podcast, for the rest of the episode, I'm just going to refer to it as the 1887 Bulletin, because I'm not saying that name. Okay. All right, so what Wiley and his team reported in Part 1 of the 1887 Bulletin... Was certainly repulsive, but it wasn't surprising. Like as I've said, everyone knows this. Everyone knows the dairy industry is disgusting. This is just a widely known fact. Um, the milk samples that Wiley and his team tested were almost all thinned and dirty and whitened with chalk or plaster. Um, more than one of the samples they tested had like visible worms wiggling around in the in the bottles. Um, then they moved on to, to butter and they found that more than a third of the butter samples that they tested only had one thing in common with real butter. and That was the name on the label.
1: Okay.
0: Yep. And just for some historical context here, it was just recently that butter substitutes were invented. In 1869, a French chemist created oleomargarine. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is Latin for olive pearls.
1: Yeah.
0: Olive being a reference to the olive oil used to make it. And I don't know what the pearls is all about. I don't know. pearlescent and chine. I don't know. Not sure. Sounded good though, right?
1: Yeah.
0: A French inventor then kind of appropriated this name for his new butter substitute made from beef fat and ground up animal stomachs. Olives. Same thing, right? Same, same.
1: Yeah.
0: So these things were both called margarine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who knows what you were getting, right? I mean, I, I should take that back. It's America. I know what we're getting. We're getting the cheaper one, which is the gross one. Sure. Okay. So the new food fad hit America in 1876 and really took off when the meatpacking industry realized that they could make money from their waste. All that byproduct of animal slaughter, they have a new way to sell it. Um. <laughs> Yeah, spoiler alert here. The meatpacking industry does not come off great in this whole story. Um it, the opposite of great actually. Like they're they're just terrible. They they are the villains. If there is one villain in this story, it's them.
1: Antagonists for sure. Mhm.
0: So um the up-and-coming stockyards in Chicago, which are going to become a huge player in the meatpacking game, introduced this idea of adding a few drops of milk to the animal fat substitute thing and then labeling it butter. There's dairy in there now, right? It's butter. Milk. Mm -hmm. A few drops of milk. Yeah. Uh, So just to show you how popular the substitutes were, here's a quote from an oleomargarine salesman overheard by Mark Twain. He wrote about it in his 1883 book, Life on the Mississippi. Quote, you can't tell it from butter. By George, an expert can't. You are going to see the day pretty soon when you can't find an ounce of butter to bless yourself with in any hotel in the Mississippi and Ohio Valleys outside of the biggest cities. Why, we are turning out oleomargarine now by the thousands of tons and we can sell it so dirt cheap, the whole country has got to take it. Can't get around it, you see. Butter don't stand any show. Butter's had its day. And quotation. This guy was fairly confident. I mean, he's got his his sales pattern down pretty well. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. Um and that idea obviously didn't sit super well with the dairy industry. Of course. Now we uh now we're gonna have our very first interest um instance of a very common theme throughout the story, which is large lobbying groups influencing lawmaking.
1: Oh, that's never happened. It doesn't, doesn't even happen now.
0: It doesn't even happen now. Um, to the point of stopping the laws altogether or making them entirely ineffective.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound familiar like, either. No.
0: No, we, good thing we got over that. Whew. So the dairy industry and the meat packing industry went to war, politically speaking. The dairy industry argued against butter substitutes based on the ingredients list. Or should I say the lack of one?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, So... In addition to the ground-up animal stomachs and fats, the butter substitutes often had nitric acid, lime sulfate, or lead acetate. Uh, then they dyed them with things containing red ochre or brick dust or lead chromate, and then they mixed in a disinfectant like bromochloralum. Bromochloralum, bromine, chlorine, aluminum. You know. Yeah. So that the margin wouldn't stink too badly. The dairy industry. Well, it is better
1: when it doesn't smell bad.
0: I'm just, I'm just trying to. Oh, I'm trying to imagine this, and I don't really want to. Um, so, the dairy industry's campaign also caused politicians to question how people are supposed to know exactly which animals are in their margin. Again, lack of labeling, lack of ingredient lists. Um, one congressman wondered how we were to know if there were cats or dogs or rats in these products. Yeah. And I want to say that that's an exaggeration, but no, that was, I mean, who knows, there might have been. Probably was. Rats for sure. I'm I sure was there were say
1: rats. rats seems likely.
0: Yeah. And so, in 1886, they did manage to pass the Butter Act. And you might be thinking, I thought they didn't pass any food safety laws.
1: Was this a food safety law yeah. then, is the next question?
0: Well, I'll tell you the story, okay? Here's okay. the story. The Butter Act passed. It regulated everything to do with butter, and other dairy laws quickly followed. And then the US joined the rest of the civilized world and required manufacturers to put ingredient labels on their foods at the end.
1: That doesn't sound do like Do you the believe
0: end. me? <laughs> That's not the story. Oh.
1: Okay. I wish that you that should have
0: that really should have been the story. That's not what happened. That's way too easy. They passed the Butter Act, but the meat packers got in there. And it
1: made butter out of it.
0: <laughs> it turned out that if this act was going to pass, the politicians had to make concessions. And so the lobbying took almost every useful part of the act out. And they ended up with a bill that taxed margarine at two cents per pound, which didn't matter because it was still at two cents per pound, way cheaper to make than butter. And it required that they write the words margarine or oleum margarine somewhere on their label, or they might get a small fine. So no, no, no safety, no safety anything. Just, just attacks. A small one. Now the second part of the 1887 bulletin was dedicated to uh, analysis of spices. Good. It was, again, not new that people were trying to trick other people with adulterated or completely fake spices. This is, that's actually one of the oldest um, tricks in the book. Yeah, I mean, the spice like, trade was predominant when, for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say the ancient people would trick each other with spices all the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just easy when they're ground up, right? When they're whole exactly. spices, it's a little bit hard to fake, but ground up, it's just, you have know, no chance unless you get your little at home chemistry kit, which actually a lot of people did have in the 1800s. So, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, little basic chemistry kits. Yeah. But by this time, so again, we're in um, we're in 1887 right now. Some well, no, it's
1: 2021. But...
0: <laughs> Thanks for clarifying, Everett. I, I just... think our listeners would have been real confused. I was worried for a moment there. Yeah, they would have been real, real worried. So, some countries by now, like Great Britain and Canada, had laws regulating spices. But even with these laws. Canada actually had published a spice analysis and report that was really shocking with how bad things were, mm-hmm. um, even with our regulations. So Wiley kind of got inspired to look into it there and made it part two of the, the bulletin. He said, actually, quote, the Dominion of Canada does a much better job monitoring foodstuffs than the United States. What might we find here? So, you know, good job. Yay, us. Yes. But there was still a lot of fake stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and here are the results, okay? 100% of the dry mustards they tested were adulterated or completely fake. Uh, some companies made it by dyeing flour and gypsum yellow with a coal tar dye containing benzene.
1: Great. All of that
0: sounds really safe, right? Mm. Coal, tar, benzene. The flour? Gypsum. <laughs> That's true. The flour won't kill you. Good. Okay. Unless you... Have CVX. Um, Ninety-two point five percent of all spice was adulterated or fake. Eighty-three point three percent of cloves, which were faked by burning seashells. Seashells. Yeah, burn seashells and grind them up. That's cloves. Huh. Fifty-five percent of ginger was fake. Um, do you want to know how you make fake ginger?
1: I don't know. I mean, Sally's already out over seashells for.
0: <laughs> no, you need some more shells. You need need shells, you need some like cracker dust and maybe some ground up wheat. And then you like dye it with some like red clay. I don't know why red doesn't make sense. Ginger's not red. But, um, But that apparently made fake ginger. Sure. Some manufacturers used a bulk approach for their frauds. Oh. There was, for instance, a company in New York that made peppered mustard, clove, cinnamon, cassia, allspice, nutmeg, ginger, and mace. And their strategy was they bought 5,000 pounds of coconut shells every year, ground them up, and added them to all their spices. Just to, you know, dilute them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Black pepper was usually just charcoal and sawdust. And and that had been a well-known problem for a while in the markets. But when Wiley and his team tested them, they actually found some more. They found sawdust, cereal crumbs, gypsum, potato scraps, hemp seed... An astonishing extent of powdered olive pits, walnut shells, almond shells, sand, soil, and more. (laughs) So that's black pepper for you. Okay. Um, But black pepper was somehow really popular. Like, it was like the hot spice to use all of a sudden.
1: You mean the hot sawdust to use.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know how. How did everyone love this thing that tasted like all of what I just mentioned? But it maybe
1: was. all that stuff has a great flavor. Here's the thing: it may out. not be safe to eat, but it sure may taste We're clearly good.
0: Clearly missing out. Yeah. Um, God damn! All the government interfering with my freedom to
1: eat sawdust. I was gonna
0: say they don't, though. They just interfere with my freedom to sell it. Um, That's
1: true. That's true.
0: Because pepper was so hot, there was a company trying to capitalize on that, and they made That's up this—they made up this spice called um, uh, what was it called? I have to find it in my notes because I lost it. Oh, it was just called pepper dust. They named it pepper dust. And so a bunch of companies started manufacturing pepper dust. Um, it was marketed as like pepper light, you know, and it was sold it was sold really cheap. Like, do you love pepper, but it's too strong of a taste for you? Try our pepper dust. Um and at least they sold it inexpensively because it certainly didn't cost them anything to make when Wiley and his team analyzed it, they found it was literally just dust. Like, like, just sweeping the floor. Just swept the floor out of the spice factory and just put it in things.
1: Good.
0: Just dust. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, by the way, the chemist on Wiley's team that wrote this particular spice report, he, he had it in his final draft, and then he promptly asked for a transfer to a different section because this food analysis was too disgusting for him to possibly handle any longer. Yeah. I think that's so funny. Um so now we come to the third and final part of the eighteen eighty seven bulletin, which was devoted to alcoholic beverages. Okay. This particular investigation was included in the bulletin because some people were starting to worry about the salicylic acid that was being used to preserve wine and beer. Salicylic acid is found in a lot of different plants, um, but mainly mainly willow bark is where yeah. is where we get it, and it was it's been used actually since a pain um, since ancient Egypt as a painkiller. I didn't know it was quite that old that that knowledge existed. But today, of course, it's used to make the active ingredient in aspirin, which is acetyl salicylic acid. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: In the early 1800s, chemists had just learned to extract extract the pure compound from the willow bark. So they had like higher doses all of a sudden. And they discovered through that that high doses can cause gastric bleeding. And later, people discovered high doses of salicylic acid caused permanent kidney damage as well. Um, So by the mid-1800s, during chemists, had discovered now how to make synthetic salicylic acid. So it was available in much higher quantities. Now you have high doses, high quantities. We can use it for whatever we want. Lab workers had to be careful when they're making it, though. To not get any of the dust in their nose, because it would cause like instant nose irritation and sneezing, itching, bleeding. Um, so we should really be eating it, obviously.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, not inhaling it, obviously. Right.
0: Exactly. Don't let it go in your nose, but but eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so for some people, it seemed safe enough to put in food or drinks as a preservative, but others were more cautious. In mm. 1881, as I mentioned, Germany and also France banned the use of salicylic acid as a preservative in wine or beer. Unless you want to ship it to the States.
1: In which case, go nuts. Go for
0: it, yeah. Other countries soon followed, but not good old USA, of course. So Wiley's team found that an average bottle of American wine had about two grams of salicylic acid. This was just the average, though. Some bottles of wine were up to about four grams, which is the full therapeutic dose that a doctor would have prescribed back in the day. Um, but just for reference, I looked up the the toxic dose of salicylic acid um and it's about five hundred milligrams per kilogram um, okay so if I'm just trying to ballpark figures to ha- help people understand that four gram bottle of wine would be a possibly lethal dose for a baby, not that babies should be drinking full bottles of wine. I'm just trying to kind of
1: one glass um, max
0: I'm. Just <laughs> I'm just trying to I'm just trying to show you uh, how much like that's a lot and and we have to keep in mind that it was being found in more and more products in the grocery store so maybe your bottle of wine only has four grams but then you ate you know whatever for breakfast that has salicylic acid and whatever for lunch that has salicylic acid and whatever for dinner that has salicylic acid and then you drink your bottle of wine and you just had so much salicylic acid.
1: Yeah, plus you got to think that there's been days when people even back then have decided to go binge drinking and drink a couple bottles of wine.
0: Right, and the average bottle of beer was 1.2 grams of salicylic acid per bottle.
1: Yeah, that's still a lot.
0: That's so much. <laughs> but at this point, Wiley still refused to make a definitive statement about salicylic acid. He he really, his biggest goal is he just wanted a law making uh mandating truthful ingredient labels Mm -hmm. he he was more concerned about that at this point than what was in the food he he wanted everyone to know what they're buying he didn't want people to be tricked anymore Um, but this kind of finally started him thinking that what good is it to label the ingredients if there's never been any real research done to say if the ingredients were safe, like, what's the point in saying, by the way, just so you guys know, there's 1.2 grams of salicylic acid in this bottle of beer. Who knows what that means, right? Right. So for the first time, he became interested in the idea of human trials of salicylic acid. That was his first thought. And, and maybe other preservatives after that. And he's just wondering, yeah. like, would this be possible? Yeah. How could we do this?
1: How can we figure out what the effects are?
0: How? Ethically, practically, how? How can this be done? Um, And unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to, to leave it for part one of the poison squad, because there's so much more awesome and not at all disgusting things to come. I can't wait to tell you about how gross the meatpacking industry is. Mm, That's good. Um, Everett, I was just thinking to myself that I've been really engrossed in this for a while and I'm really interested in it. And I think it's super cool. I'm not sure if my passion will um, be shared by, by everyone, but do you think that you learned something new?
1: Yes. And my mind's been thinking now since about halfway through about what kind of, you know, business we can make around something that's awesome, but should then just be in like essence or dust form. <laughs>
0: Um, are we going to be in a factory where we make something else and then just sweep up the dust and say it's
1: Yeah, I'm just going to find oh, out what's okay. awesome and then we sweep up the dust around it and we like can sell that. Like go to a that.
0: Lego factory and sweep up like all the Lego scraps and, and then
1: sell it as Lego dust.
0: Sell it as Lego dust. People love Lego.
1: Yeah, I love Lego.
0: I don't know what they're going to do with the Lego dust, but they
1: So, they'll, if, they'll so find if you start out. seeing Lego dust being sold within the next few weeks... Then
0: someone stole our intellectual property.
1: That's right. Please sue them.
0: So, we're going to come back next week and tell you all the gross stuff that people did next. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.